Okay. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here. Uh, interesting enough, uh, Ryan Boomershine, it was my first boss uh, when I, wife and I got married and moved to a southern Michigan to teach in a Christian school, and he was my first boss. So it's kind of interesting how it all ties in together, small world. Uh, I'd like to talk to you this morning uh, about an interesting topic, a topic where more scripture is devoted to than any other subject in the Bible. So I'm going to talk about the subject that has more press than any other subject in the Bible. What do you think I'm going to teach about? What is the most spoken of subject in all of the Bible? Asher. Dwelling together in fellowship with God. See, that's how you get A's in class. You just pay attention to the very basics, right? What would you think is the most spoken? I'll bet if you were to list five things, I could give you five things that you could pick. I would bet it might not even be on your list. Maybe I'm completely off base. Um, let me read to you Psalm 61. In verse, uh, Psalm 61, the first four verses. Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a shelter for me and a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, Selah. The subject is the tabernacle. The tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. Now it says there in verse 4, I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. Now, uh, the psalmist is not talking about the Old Testament tabernacle there. What is he talking about? I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. <clears throat> not talking about the place where only the priests could enter. Moses couldn't even enter the tabernacle. <clears throat> but he's talking about the symbolic, the symbolism of the tabernacle being the place where we dwell together in fellowship with God. And so uh, I'd like to talk to you this morning about dwelling in fellowship with God. And here's my main idea. Worship in the New Covenant is patterned after and pictured in. So two P words there. Worship in the New Covenant is patterned after and pictured in the Old Testament tabernacle. Have you ever heard the expression, the quote, the new is in the old concealed? Have you heard this saying before? The new is in the old concealed. The New Covenant the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And then what's the second half of that saying? Yes, and the old is in the new revealed. So that, that's kind of what I want to, the theme that I want to talk to you about in, in regards to the Old uh, Testament and the tabernacle and worship. In Romans 15, 4. 
Uh, we have this principle stated in Scripture. Uh, I'll read the, the whole the first couple verses. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And then he just, he, he kind of takes that and, he, and he's like, for, for is probably the most important word in all the Bible. Anytime you see the word for, it's good to underline it. It's kind of because, or for this very reason, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So he's referring there to the Old Testament, uh, and they were written that we might learn and that might inform uh, the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament is, is for us to understand and, and revealed in the New Covenant in the New Testament. Uh, I was going to read this just to establish my point about the tabernacle. It's dealt with 13 chapters in Exodus, 18 chapters in Leviticus. 13 chapters in Numbers, 2 chapters in Deuteronomy, 4 chapters in Hebrews. You could make the case that the book of John is a commentary on the tabernacle, and Revelation also uses tabernacle symbolism. So throughout the Bible, it's a very heavily dealt with subject in the Bible. So I just want to look at it and introduce a very broad, vast subject this morning. In John chapter 1, 14, chapter 1 and verse 14. Let me read that to you. Should be able to quote it. And the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's why some have said John is, is like this commentary on the tabernacle. The word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And so here, here's a quote from Arthur Pink. And, and I think after this lesson, this is your homework to take home and, and for you to do and meditate on. <clears throat> as a whole and in each of its parts, the tabernacle <clears throat> foreshadows the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the tabernacle is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And time would fail us to go into all the aspects of how that's true. Uh, but let's just start with a couple things. So first of all, I'd like to look at the location of the tabernacle. The location of the tabernacle. Where was the tabernacle located in the Old Testament? Uh, in the absolute epicenter of Israel. Now, I had the privilege of going downtown Nashville yesterday, and I kind of used Google Maps, and it's kind of important and significant what is in the center of a town, right? What is the, and what would you think is in the dead center of Nashville? What's that? Capitol, Capitol building? I, no, I don't think so. A bar. A bar. 
I think it's Ryman Auditorium. Um, but, you know, as you go around that, lots of bars, lots of music, a uh, hockey stadium, a football stadium. That is not a lot of churches. Right? Now, when I went to Tyler, the Crute's house, you get off the exit and there, boom, there's a big church. Boom, there's a church. Uh, lots of churches out there in the suburb. But the, why? Why wouldn't you guys just start a church? I saw a lot of people down there. You know, you're running. Why don't you guys just go get something downtown? A couple 10,000 square feet down there. There's a lot of people. Why not? You know the answer, right? The, the cost. Because the value of being in the center where everybody is, you know, the square footage is astronomical. So... The location of the tabernacle, now you had all 12 tribes, and they were designed to be all around the tabernacle there, um, except, wait a minute, we have 13 tribes because the Levites were not, didn't have their own section. They were Moses' children and family, uh, Aaron's family and his two boys. They dwelt right here around it. But then how do you still have 12 tribes, just a little history Lesson, how do you still have 12 tribes around the tabernacle if one of the tribes, which is Levi, is not included in that? Yep, Joseph's two sons. Who are they? Manasseh and Ephraim. Broke that up a little, just a tidbit there. Okay, so the location um, is in the, now they're in the wilderness and it's a temporary location. So how did they know when to move? When did they get up and move and go to someplace else? Asher. Yeah, God told them. How did he tell them? Yeah, the, his Shekinah glory, the cloud there that's uh, hovering over it would rise up and move. All right, time to move. pack up the tent. And then they had these, all the Levites had the responsibility of bearing all of the furniture and all the items. Roll it up, pack it up, and and leave. The place where God met with man. Um, in back to Exodus is really where I'm taking the most of my information from. Uh, in Exodus, so we'll just kind of start in Exodus 25. Exodus 25 and verse 8. And this is God, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the, all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Which leads into the next. So there's the location right in the center, the prominent. Um, so point number two would be the architectural design. Let's look at the architectural design. So, God reveals to Moses, who knows how it worked. He showed him this vision. You know, I don't know if it was, it was like a super duper 3D CAD thing. And it just programmed into Moses's brain of all the instruments, all the dimensions, the ingredients, everything that was to be made up. And God was very precise <clears throat> about the architectural design. So 
It was 100, 100 cubits by 50 cubits. How far, how big is a cubit? Cubit is the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow, about 18 inches. So you have this uh, tabernacle that is 150 feet by 75 feet. Now, uh, uh, so we would say that the tabernacle was a visible illustration of a heavenly reality. A visible illustration of a heavenly reality. The old is in uh, the new revealed. So this tabernacle is the revelation of a heavenly reality. Now, the outside of the gates, uh, the, the curtains here, were seven and a half feet high. <clears throat> so you couldn't really see in, and they were what color? What color were the, was the outside curtain? Is white, white seven and a half foot tall curtains hanging on pillars and curtain rods all around the tabernacle, so you couldn't really see in. Now, we think of the color white. That was what the priests' garments were all made of. They wore they wore white garments, and then the tabernacle curtains are all white. What does white typically symbolize? And I'll, I'll give you the illustration of the wedding dress. The wedding dress. What is that a picture of and symbolic of? Yeah, purity. The pure, uh, unspotted, holy, set apart, sanctified. And that's really what the white curtains uh, pictured and symbolized. Now, there was only one door into the tabernacle. Hopefully that you're... Remembering some verse out of the New Testament as you hear that uh, one door. There was only one way in, and there was only one way out. And the gate of the tabernacle faced east. So that, I always get turned around with my directions, but basically the way, best way to understand it, the sun sets in the west and rises in the east. So the sun would rise and the first crack of sunlight would flow into the temple through the door. The sun, the day star, would rise in our hearts. So the sun would rise facing the one door. Now the door was not white. The door was made uh, very specially. It seems to indicate by some of the women and some of the, some of the men, they sewed this elaborate, ornate, beautiful door out of three colors, three different colors. The first color was blue. Now you just have to look up into the sky and see what blue represents. Heaven, the heavenly, the divine. Okay, blue. And then the other color was purple. What is the color of purple always a symbolic of? Royalty, right? The king. And then red. And what is red always symbolic of? What's that? Might? Man. No, not man. Red. Blood. Sacrifice. Yes, blood. So, again, I don't get bogged down in all the colors. And, you know, you can really go down and do a deep dive with that. But in John chapter 10 and verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. 
By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. So we go back to this idea of fellowship with God, dwelling in fellowship with God. You have to come in through the door. What happens if you don't come in? What did Jesus say? If you don't come in through the door, you are a thief and a robber. Thief and a robber, yes. So you have this door, this beautiful door facing east, blue, purple, and red. Now, uh, Ty was staying at his home, a beautiful home, and, and he told me this morning, he said, oh, I love sitting in this room uh, because all of the natural light, right? And so the art, as we talk about the architecture of the tabernacle, you think about you go into the courtyard and you have all of this natural light so that anybody could see. When you go into the tabernacle, now these, we're not going to get into the actual tabernacle building, but it was covered thick with four coats of, of animal skin sewn together. So if you were to walk into there, it would be pitch black. So how did the priests see what was going on as they walked into the tabernacle? Yeah, there was a lamp, right, with olive oil beaten a certain way, and that lit up. Uh, and so usually we would say that that's symbolic of the Holy Spirit giving illumination, the olive oil. And so the priests would have not natural light, but they needed illumination of the Holy Spirit. And then when you went into the Holy of Holies, there was no lamp in there how would they see that high priest who went in that one day on the Day of Atonement to put blood on the mercy seat? How would he see anything? There was what was called the, the Shekinah glory, God's presence. In some way, he dwelt in between the, the, the two angels there. And remember, Moses comes out of the tent of meeting and his face was glowing. That's that Shekinah glory. So you kind of see that in the tabernacle, these three levels of light. Um, and so as we look at the architecture there, um, there's really some cool, cool things. And I, I won't go into any more than that. Let's move on to the construction. Okay, it's time to build it. God gives the pattern to Moses, and now we have to build it. Well, what had, is the nation of Israel? Some say there's about a million people. What have they been doing for the previous ah, 400 years? Slavery. Now, that, that is not exactly a high-paying job, would you agree? And so they come out of Egypt having been slaves for 400 years, so they hadn't exactly acquired a lot of wealth. And then here God calls them to build this tabernacle out of the best stuff, the, the gold and silver and brass and purple and red. Where does Moses find all of this and how does he do a fundraiser uh, to build the tabernacle? He sets forth this call and he calls for the free will offering. All right, if anybody is moved, there's no... He doesn't compel anybody. He doesn't go up and do the sales pitch and say, hey, you know, I want to build this. I know you have some extra money. How about you give me 25000 He doesn't do that at all. He just has this free will offering, and people, out of their own motivation, because they wanted to do it, bring forth and set, set before them gold, silver, brass, bronze, all kinds of, of wealthy, high-end uh, objects. They say, you know, with... 
inflation is probably even more than that, but one person has estimated that the cost of the contents of the tabernacle, about $10 million, $10 million. And that's not counting the cost of construction, right? Usually when you do a building project, you figure, okay, if the materials are going to cost me a million dollars, what is the construction cost going to be? About the same, right? That, that's kind of how, how they do estimates. And so you have to figure you need not, you have $10 million worth of materials, you're going to need $10 million worth of labor. It was all donated. Where did they get all that gold, silver? Where did they get it all? Yes, if you remember the story of the Exodus, God's ready to implement the Passover, and he says, hey, before you go, go to the Egyptians, tell them what you're going to do, and we have the phrase, they plundered the Egyptians, right? The Egyptians were here, take whatever you want, go into my uh, storage, self-storage, get yourself something nice, whatever. Yes, get out of here, you're killing us all, the plagues, take it and go. So they loaded up from the Egyptians, and they were donating them to the building of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 36 this is something, you know, that you give around Faith Promise Sunday. This is the passage that you use or when you're going to build a building or um, Exodus chapter 36 says, then wrought, then wrought Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that God had commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even everyone whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. And they received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary to make it with all. And they brought yet unto him free offerings every morning. And all the wise men that wrought all the work of the sanctuary came every man from his work which they made. And they spake unto Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded to make. And Moses gave commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman make any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing. So the, Moses actually had to say, stop giving. Now this is, if you've been in church a long time, usually there, there's a certain segment of people that, that use this mentality. Well, I have this, I bought a new one, but I have this old one, what am I going to do with it? Well, let's have a garage sale. So they have a garage sale and things don't sell. Jeez, nobody would buy that. I know we, we really enjoyed that and it holds a sentimental place in our heart. Nobody wants to buy it and it's too expensive to take it to the dump. You know what we'll do. Come on, anybody? We're going to donate that to the church. Anybody, is this new? Is this just a Michigan thing? That people, we'll donate that. So you go down to the basements of churches and you have these ratted, tatted old couches and these bent, mangled things and these nasty pictures that are all gaudy. And eh. They didn't want to throw them away. They couldn't sell them, so they donated. Anyway, sorry, that's a little, little hobby horse there for me. I'm getting over it. Um, 
But that wasn't like this. They were donating the good stuff, the gold. They wanted to be a part of this. They wanted, they wanted something awesome. And so God is, is taking the skilled individuals. Um, they are excellent builders. He's equipped them with his spirit uh, to remain on them, which is a little bit rare in the Old Testament, so that they could make this building with precision. Uh, I wrote down the word Bezalel and Ohiliab, craftsmen. Uh, have you ever been to a place where you just look at something and you think, oh, this this isn't a guy who just threw this together and and, and was cheap and what? This guy's a craftsman, a Finnish carpenter, right? And there's just a, a level of appreciation for Finnish carpentry and craftsmanship, and, and that's what we have here. Not only that, but these craftsmen were teaching. Other people were willing and they wanted to help, and so these guys were teaching them how to build it. Uh, and not only were they craftsmen, but they were working with wood, stone, metal, embroidery, and weaving. Usually craftsmen are like, really good with wood, I'm really good with wood, or I'm really good with metal and I can weld. Or, um, but th these men were equipped with excellence and craftsmanship in all the different categories. And so the last thing I want to talk about, so we look at the construction. The last thing I want to talk about is the furniture, the furniture of the Old Testament tabernacle. So you come in the door and you walk in to the door, and the first thing that you see is the largest piece of furniture in all the tabernacle. This piece of furniture was so large, you could take all the other pieces of furniture and fit them into this one piece of furniture. So this is a prominent, key, important piece of furniture. It was the first thing that everybody saw who walked into the tabernacle. What was it? The bronze altar, a huge altar. You can see it, a little bit of smoke rising up from it. Seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. This massive grill, barbecue, wood-fired barbecue grill. You guys are like, yeah, get my apron on here, start talking. But it's not like that. It is a massive instrument of death. It's hot. They're already in the desert. And yet there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Do you remember the story of uh, Elijah when he's up against the prophets of Baal and uh he kind of mocks them and says, uh, you know, cut yourselves and they can't get the fire to fall down from heaven. And then it's his turn and he says, hey, poor, uh, the story starts out. And it came to pass at the time of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. So at the time of the so they offer two sacrifices, one in the morning and one in the day. And so it's hot. Now, what would happen here at the altar, the first thing you see when you walk in, this massive instrument of death, uh, every 
head of household had to bring a sacrifice to be offered on the altar. So picture the scene. You got dad there with the prized bull or the prized sheep or maybe turtle doves, pigeons, or, or lambs or goats. They're holding there. They maybe brought his son with them. And you're waiting in line. There's a million people, and this is 100, 100 feet by 50, 150 feet by 50 feet. So you're waiting in line. There's already a morning and an evening sacrifice, and you have to offer your sacrifice. And what the, the head of the house would do would be to lay his hands on the head of the sacrifice, conferring, confessing his sins, explaining what, you know, the Bible says when... What shall we say when our children say unto you, why are you doing this? So dad is teaching. Now listen, son. The father is going to make a sacrifice of an our innocent lamb, probably a lamb that grew up with the boy, probably was born and he helped raise it and helped feed it and it slept with him, this precious lamb. The father is going to make a sacrifice of the precious lamb on behalf of his children. And so... The line must have been incredibly long. You know, when did they go? They went when they felt like they needed to. You know, it was probably, wife probably nagged and said, are you going to go make the sacrifice? You, do you know how long it's been since you've taken a lamb? You know, the Joneses next door take the lamb every right? You can just imagine the scene and how, yes, woman, I'll take the, sorry, I'm getting off of there a little bit. Uh, but they're offering these sacrifices so the, you laid your hands on this animal, and then you had to kill it. The man had to kill it, and probably did it by cutting its throat. So imagine the noise and the kicking. There's blood everywhere. I, some, sometimes I would say that the priests were not priests. They were butchers. You know, you see the guys in Home Depot, and they're painters. And what color outfit are they wearing? Yeah, isn't that weird that they're always wearing white pants and a white shirt? And then it's hardly even white because it's just all, all these different things. That's kind of the priests here in their white garments. Sad, they're in the wilderness, in the desert, so it's dirty already, dust. And then there's blood and hair everywhere. They're soaked in blood. They're killing these animals and they're bleeding them out. Uh, Priests were scorched by fire, blackened by smoke, and bloodied from sacrifices. The ground and the altar were saturated with blood, so much so that there was a river of blood that flowed from the altar. Think of all those songs that talk about the crimson river, the crimson blood that flowed. So there's blood everywhere around the altar. Not only that, but when they killed the animal, the priest had to take the blood and smear it on the altar. Thousands and thousands of animals with blood all over a fiery hot altar. It's black with smoke, the fat and grease, the grease fires, the blood, innocent animals everywhere. There were at least five different offerings that they made on, on this. Uh, four or five different. There was the, 
burnt offering that was for sin. That's where they sprinkled the blood on the breath. The peace offering, which was more of an offering as just a gift. Uh, uh, usually it was in relationship to a vow. It's what Samuel's mom uh, provided when she gave him a son. She brought a peace offering. And then there was the guilt and trespass offering for unintentional sins. Things I, I didn't do on purpose, or, or maybe they were sins of omission. Remember uh, when Job sacrifices for his children and says, I, I'm doing this, I pray for my children, lest they may have committed a sin, and, and, and they didn't even know it. And so there was a whole offering for guilt and trust. And then there was a grain offering, and that was uh, very valuable to have grain. Why would it be very valuable to have grain? How many of you have ever grown a garden? Is that really easy? Just throw in a couple seeds, man. You just cast them out there and boom, come out there in six weeks. Man, I'm eating fresh, fresh uh, tomatoes. No, they're in the wilderness. They're in a desert. And so to grow grain, and then they're moving all the time. Uh, and so to grow grain would have been very difficult. And so it would have been very rare. So this grain offering, you had to mix it with oil. It could have no yeast in it, oil, salt. And then they had to put something on it. Do you know what the other ingredient they had to put on this grain offering was? Frankincense. Does that sound familiar? Remember frankincense from the three wise men bringing that for Jesus? Frankincense. So there's all these different... Uh, then... They have to consume it. So some of the offerings they could eat, the priests could eat, the, the people could eat, but um, the, the main offering had to be just consumed and burnt into a book. So you have to get it pretty hot to consume an animal. I mean, I, I've burnt some things on 4th of July, but to really shrivel it up and burn it into ash, that fire has got to be hot. And so there's some of the priests had to constantly be gathering wood There's one of the pictures there. So there's all these instruments of, of doing the grill, and, and they're burning it all the time. But very quickly, ashes start, started to pile up. And so the Bible talks about how you have to take and shovel the ash out and create a pile. And in that pile are all the bird heads. So if people bought birds to be sacrificed, they would snap the head off and throw it into the ash pile and then sacrifice the bird. And so there's this massive pile. So they had a whole crew. You know, you think you have it bad if you're on the setup crew for Sunday morning. Imagine if you're on ash removal duty all day long. I don't know if they had wheelbarrows. Your job is to fill up the ash and take it where? Outside the camp. Take the ash outside the camp. So, And, and you're doing this. Mom, how many times have you yelled at me? You're doing that in your good clothes? You did that? You changed the oil, honey, in your white shirt that I just bought you? Right? And so they're wearing their white priestly garments, and their duty is ash removal. And not only ash, but there's, there's some of the skin and hair uh, of the animals. And so you got bird heads, animal skins, and ash. And they're hauling this out just as fast as they're killing animals. There's blood, there's ash, there's grease, hot fire. It's an instrument of death. Brass is a symbolic of judgment. 
And every time you wanted to enter into fellowship with God in the Old Testament, to walk into that tabernacle, it was a visual reminder to you that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It was first and foremost. Then there was something else on the altar. You can kind of see it there. On the four corners, what are those? The horns of the altar. What would they have horns up there for? Think about this. You have several priests who are cutting up the meat and butchering it and cleaning it and washing it and getting it up there to be burned, some to be eaten, some to be consumed. And so the grill is con- you got to constantly be stoking the fire so that it's really hot, burning everything. And then there's these horns on the altar. And what do they do? They keep the sacrifice on the altar. As you're moving all this meat and grabbing it and removing it and putting new on and jostling things and moving around, they never wanted the sacrifice to fall onto the ground. It had to stay on the altar. Now, if you think about that in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you think about the altar being a type of the cross, what was it that held the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? Now, there's, there's one answer that comes to mind, but I don't think that's right, right. We could say the nails, right? The nails held him on the Well, yeah, they, but you know what? The nails didn't hold him on the cross. I've often thought that, man, if that were me up there and some one of those clowns came up, ah, look at this. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? If you're the son of God, why don't you come down? You know what I would have done? It would have been beams out of the finger time. I would have just leveled them into like the lightsaber going through Ben Kenobi, right? Boom, dust. Right? But what does the Bible teach us about why, what held Jesus there? Was it the nails? He could have have called 10,000 angels. That would have been us. We would have been lightsaber, 10,000 angels, bring him down, destroy everybody. But But he hung on the cross. And what does he teach us in the New Testament? Who took his life? Pilate take his life? No man takes it from me, but I lay it down willingly. Three minutes. There's one more cool, cool thing that happens with the horns of the altar. The horns of it. Anybody remember the stories in the Old Testament? That was, there was something that you could do with the horns of the altar. If you were accused for a crime that you didn't really commit, you could run to the altar and lay hold on the horns of the altar And that would be a method of pardoning. Joab does it. uh, One of the priests, when Solomon becomes king, and interesting, can't get into it all, but the priest is is preserved. But Joab, no, Joab, he he had crossed too many lines. Solomon just said basically, kill him anyway. But you could, and so it's that picture of lay hold on eternal life. The horn is always the symbol of power in the Old Testament. Lay hold on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice. And I'll just close with this this, uh, reminder of, of the main idea of this whole lesson. It's a quote from Arthur Pink. 
as a whole and in each of its parts, the tabernacle foreshadows the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Okay, we'll do, sure. Father, we thank you for this powerful picture as it just helps illustrate truth that we need to understand and receive. Uh, we thank you for the gift of illumination through the Holy Spirit, using your word, your spoken word, uh, to communicate truth, eternal truth. Uh, we gathered this morning, and what a thrill it is to gather. And none of us had to bring in a lamb. None of us had to bring in a bull or, or to kill it or any of that, Lord. Once and for all, you have made the eternal sacrifice that we can all participate with fellowship with God. We are mindful of our sin and what it deserves, that sin destroys lives and it, it affects others. And so we just, as the Old Testament saints put their head their hands on the animal's head and confess their sins. Might we do that today and have fellowship with you restored. Pray for the preaching of your word and singing praises to you and communion and fellowship one another today, that you would bless it, that your presence would dwell with us today. We thank you in Jesus' precious name.